from third to fifth grade, I went to, I think, one of the first like gifted and talented programs in New York City. We were a small group of 30 students who took a bus to go to a school outside of our neighborhood. I think I was one of maybe just a couple of kids who were the only non-African-American or Black students in the school. And my experience in school was Black culture and Black history in America and globally was exalted every day. So we would begin the day singing the Black National Anthem, lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven ring. There was this kind of exaltation and appreciation of Black culture that I don't know where else you would find that because that was certainly not, you know, typical. And there was a facet of me that was like becoming a little advocate. And I think that was the beginning of this sort of awareness and awakening to the impacts of inequities on different cultures. I think I started seeing my parents and their experience through that lens at a very young age as well. Nita Baum is an entrepreneur, co-creator, facilitator, mentor, coach, and community builder. She's also board lead for Solar Responders, the NGO from previous guest, Hunter Johansson. So thanks to Hunter for making this happen. Born in New York to an inspiring cancer scientist mother and philosophical pharmacist father, her parents influenced her curiosity, appreciation for creation, and her right brain, left brain development. In part one of this two-parter, we cover Nita's early influences, her love of school and education, her sister's influence, and playing games of imagination, and growing up in an environment of scarcity and abundance. Nita discusses experiencing the social inequity in education, developing a social and political consciousness of local and global events, travelling to China, Japan and Korea and becoming interested in philosophy and spirituality. In part two, we discuss her perspectives on the broader impact of COVID-19 and what led Nita to form her business Be Free that partners with organisations to help them activate individual, team and organisational potential. Nita questions the purpose and role of work in light of the crisis and our growing realisation of what can be achieved so easily and so quickly. We discuss the transformative movement of now and how people are reacting and the opportunity for consciousness raising, the reorientation of human capital and the transformative capacity in all of us. I hope you're inspired by the vision, values and life philosophy of Nita Baum. Nita. Hi, Mark. <laughs> Nita, welcome to the Impossible Network. Thank you. I think we have to start by giving a huge shout out and thank you to the wonderful Hunter Johansson. Absolutely. Yeah. Hunter Johansson. I always call him Johansson <laughs> being the, <laughs> the original pronunciation. Yeah. 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 But anyway, so it's been a while since we saw a good old Hunter before he headed off to Puerto Rico, but um, we finally managed to get this interview uh, set up. It would have been nice to have done it face to face in Neuhaus, but with the coronavirus, Everything's gone virtual, so we can kick off. Sounds great. So, Nita, you've had a, a very interesting sort of journey through life, and I don't quite know how to sum it up. I, I put in consulting, but I think it's a lot more than that. So I think maybe we could we can just come and you can talk about how you would describe your life's journey. But before we do, we always like to start with upbringing and where you came from and the impact of your parents and siblings and other mentors and your development you grew up in, from I believe, in New York to an inspiring cancer scientist as a mother yeah. who set the standard uh, for you on what being human is. 
And Ooh. I've heard you describe your father as an idealist, an idealist, uh, philosophical pharmacist father, <laughs> which is quite a description. So perhaps you could maybe just embellish a little bit. Yeah, sure. So I grew up in New York City. I am a native New Yorker. Uh, I grew up in Queens to a pair of East Indian immigrant parents. My father came to the States in the 60s and he also traveled quite a bit. He traveled Europe and was sort of bopping around between Europe and the States, went back to marry my mother in 1970 and they they landed in New York then. And yeah, they were pretty interesting people. Sometimes now I reflect on the fact that my own choice to be pre-med in art history, it's sort of a left brain, right brain, or you know, the creative and the analyst sides. And there was there was definitely a deep respect for science in our household. And I think I I took to that. My mother was, you know, we did science projects together from the time I was a child, like going through the stages of a butterfly's development and its capacity for metamorphosis. And she was filled with wonder and awe in, you know, reflections about her career and uh, about science. And I think, I think it wasn't just science itself, but it was her reaction to it that was really moving for me. And I experienced her joy with her um, through some of that. So there was this respect for science, but there was also, you know, my father was a was a big, broad, expansive thinker. He was a dreamer, uh, really warm, really affectionate. And he was a scientist as well as a pharmacist. He was a biochemist and was deeply interested in the sciences, but also really concerned with issues of just what it means to be human and had a real consciousness of our collective interdependence. Our conversations from the time I was young were about MLK and JFK and Gandhi mm. and and the they represented. So a couple of questions. Where did they grow up um, themselves and where did that influence on your father come from? Was it his upbringing? Mm. I wonder that a lot. It's a great question. Like my dad was a storyteller and enjoyed talking a lot about the stories from his youth. My father grew up, both of my parents spent most of their adulthood in Mumbai, in Bombay, but they were both originally from the state of Gujarat. So my dad grew up in part in a couple of different areas, but Rajkot, which is also where Gandhi was from. And my mom had roots also uh, around that, that, the state of Gujarat. And I, you know, my father's father was a doctor and a teacher. Um, his mother was the first headmistress of a, the British school for girls in, in the I forgot what they're called, but there were there were basically like kings who ruled <laughs> these oh, yes. sort of townships. Uh, you yeah, know? The, the, you know, the Indian or the British uh, people. So the Indians, uh-huh. but under British rule. So Maharajas. Yeah, maybe maybe there were yeah. So there was, was like, yeah, there was basically like a Maharaja's kingdom yeah. or town, you know. Uh-huh. And um, I think that was the sort of thing that she was she was headmistress of the girls' school there. So my father had, you know, we had educators and doctors and there was this orientation, I think, toward that I now think of as healing, a sort of healing orientation, um, which was, which was both about the individual, but was also 
a lot about the collective. And I think, you know, there's a strong sort of bend toward being philosophical and wrestling with these questions about, but wrestling with existential questions. It's quite, it's quite an unusual fusion, mm. thinking about a pharmacist who is there <laughs> to prescribe, not, not necessarily prescribe, but to deliver the prescriptions of a doctor. Yeah. But he's driven by a deep interest in humanity and healing. Totally. <laughs> Which is, seems to be completely uh, diametrically opposed to the science. And, but it's, it's fascinating. It must have been interesting having dinner conversations with your father. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, you know, and my mom had a more overt and explicit kind of healing orientation. Like we, we grew up having conversations about the science behind the food we were eating. Like from the time I was very young, it was like, why do we combine rice and lentils because it creates like a complete protein and it's nutritious. Ah. She had this very like deep connection to the earth. And in addition to her work as a cancer scientist, she was also very interested in alternative healing, East Asian, you know, from from India, from China, from other modalities. They followed a, a food combining regime. Yeah. Yeah. And like the science of why we use certain spices, like there was always, a, there's, there was sort of the trifecta. It was, it's like cumin, turmeric, and chili powder. I live off that. <laughs> <laughs> at the moment, seriously, at the moment, since the lockdown, yeah, um, I've been going to the 4th Street Co-op oh, yeah. uh, on the east side and buying my lentils and my beans and my all my dried produce yeah. and then making these big stews in the Instapot with turmeric <sighs> and with cumin. And with chili, and that's that's a staple. And then it's mixing it up. I think inspired by our uh, past guest Joshua Spodek, Bettina. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. But yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'm a big, uh, big uh, devotee of those spices. But I didn't know that there was a trifecta. Yeah, it's considered a trifecta. And again, like the science of food, I think there is this healing, or like food as medicine, food as mm-hmm. healing, and there the kind of focus she had on how much what we consume, which was definitely something I was influenced by and kind of have taken both literally and metaphorically over life, like how much what we consume is really has an impact on who we are, how we experience the world, the nature of our health and well-being, and then what we ultimately create and produce as well. She was ahead of her time. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was really cool. We looked from the time I was very young. She she had microscopes at home, so she would study. She would look at cells under the microscope. She was tech, her the technical term for her work was she was a cytotechnologist. So, you know, from the age of four or five, I was looking at human cells uh, next to my mom under the microscope, and over time, looking at you know cells that produce cancer or were related to infectious diseases or what that looked like. There, my images of my mother are very vivid and and colorful. Wow. So, I mean, I don't want to don't jump right into your education, but you must have been, she must have been guiding you or developing your interests in medicine. You know, it's so, it's really interesting. I would say like, I'm the middle kid of, we're three sisters. Uh-huh. And I think I was definitely influenced by both of them around my appreciation and respect for science and the decision, you know, my my mom also, when I was like 16, I volunteered at the hospital that she worked at. And I got to work for a doctor uh, who's, I think, now in Israel, but his name was Dr. Levin, and he was the oncologist. 
at the hospital. And it was an amazing, you know, experience. But I also started, I think the experience of being inside of the healthcare system and the hospital system, I was sort of wrestling with this dual awareness of uh, respect for science and an orientation toward healing, but also not feeling like the environment within hospitals was oriented toward healing, right? It was sort of more reactive than it felt like I think of healing and I think I was grown, you know, I was raised to think of healing as a proactive experience. Your mother would have been a wonderful functional uh, medicine doctor. Totally. I mean, today, today's environment, she would have been in her element. Absolutely. Yeah. She would have, this was her jam for sure. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, when I went to, so I went to Columbia and I, I went to study, to study medicine thinking that was uh, what I would pursue. And we also had the opportunity to choose like an additional major because pre-med is sort of a partial major and then you add. And most, most students would choose something sciencey. And I felt, I think there was an, an, a kind of an unfolding in myself, this growing awareness that science was and is incredibly valuable in, its, in the contributions it makes to us and our progress and our well-being. And it's limited in so much as I think the quote, I forget his first name, but it's Gurdjieff, who says like, science is the, tr- the search for truth. It's not the truth itself. And I think that there was this awareness I had, and I, and I think this was through you know my parents as well. And at times, it was sometimes something we shared and sometimes something we were on oppos- opposite ends of the spectrum about. But it seemed pretty apparent to me that we, we couldn't understand and we couldn't know in all the ways we'd like to know through science alone. And I think the orientation to choose art history was was both like about the rebel in me and was about this growing awareness of like an interest in wrestling with the unknown and looking for mediums through which to do that. Uh-huh. That's interesting. We interviewed Professor Pamela Smith, mm-hmm. um, who runs Making a Knowing Project at Columbia. Oh, wow. <laughs> and and she, she was fascinating, but the, she talks about the history of science and I've never thought about science of having a history the way that art does. Mm. But a lot of the history of science is tied up with artisans and artists who are there to explore and to try and push the boundaries and to uh, examine the human condition through their work, mm-hmm. whether it be making or a depiction of scenes and whatever. But I think it's really interesting that there is a a discovery around the human condition and through that discovery, a, a sense of discovery maybe and a healing element, or maybe I'm just rambling, but it's, it's, it's interesting that there isn't, they're not completely diametrically opposed in terms of what you did, yeah. the, the route you took, even though you say it was a rebel within you. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think the relationship between them became more apparent to me later in life. Like I, I think as I was going through the experience I was like, these feel pretty wildly different. And some of that was the context, right? Like there, it was both the students who were drawn, you know, and the cultures of the respective, like what a pre-med student was like versus what a, an art history student was like and the kinds of things you focused on. It felt like different worlds. And I think that's not just a reflection of the external context, but also of how I was reconciling or not reconciling the way I understood the relationship between the two. And later in life, as I befriended artists and artists were part of 
you know, have been uh, colleagues as well, appreciating so much the the ways in which art is both a technical and a scientific skill. You know, like it's very honed. I lived in Japan for a while, and I think one of the images that comes to mind is a potter. You know, our potters there. I was in a town that was known for its pottery, and and potters will spend some of them will spend, you know, hundreds of days, sometimes multiple years on a single piece of pottery. And there's a honing and there's a depth and craftsmanship, you know, an orientation toward craftsmanship. There's a technical skill to it that's also really evident. Like I would go visit the places where potters were making their pottery and just watching them was so illuminating uh, about what it takes and what it requires to produce something of such great aesthetic beauty. And at the same time, it had, it's like the process itself. It's like, it's really meditative. Like, how are you going to sit there for a hundred days <laughs> unless you're either struggling or figuring out some way to be in the moment and really be with what it is that you're creating. So there's this kind of awareness that like, yeah, there it, it's all, it's kind of all in one. It's both like the science and the transcendence of it. Yeah. It's fascinating. One of my um, best friend's father, was uh, the head of ceramics at Glasgow College of Art. And mm-hmm. he spent his lifetime making, working with clay in his studio in just outside Edinburgh. And you could like, go there over countless years and just see the progression of the same mm-hmm. pieces, mm-hmm. but just an evolution. And I go, wow. And I never appreciated <laughs> it until he, I mean, he passed recently. Mm. And you, you sort of see, I got to see some of uh, his life's work and you go, wow, that's incredible mm-hmm. that someone has devoted their lifetime to such a, a focus. Um, it's a bit like the, I don't know if you ever saw that film, uh, Jiro. Uh, La- oh yeah, Dreams of uh, Sushi. Yeah. Dreams of Sushi, yeah, totally. it's that. Someone that's just so precisely focused on one small element of life. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, it's been fascinating hearing about the the role that your parents played and the environment in which you grew up in. What about your siblings? I mean, you said you were the middle. Yeah. Are, are they similar to you or were you the sort of troublesome, <laughs> curious, uh, rebellious one? Well, I, I sometimes joke with myself that I, I created a little rupture in the family after college because I decided... I studied art history, which then opened me into East Asian studies. Some of the art that I studied was from China, Japan, and Korea. And I became really interested in the philosophy and spirituality and studied Japanese and then went to live in Japan after college. And I told my parents and my sisters a week before I was going, I was like, by the way, I'm not going to medical school and I am going to live in Japan and I'm doing that in a week. And I hope you'll come to see me off at the airport and come visit me there uh, (laughs) at some point. So my sisters are both physicians, but also, you know, and my older sister does a number of other things. She wrote a children's book recently, which is um, really beautiful. And um, she does real estate, you know, she does a, a number of things. But yeah, they were both very influential in my development as siblings are in in a multitude of ways. I think my older sister had this very natural orientation to kind of to teach and to aim <laughs> I don't I don't know a good framing for it. It was like definitely 
being with her was, was about encountering my own edges, like the edges of my own fear. You know, she's six, five and a half years older. She's much taller than me, you know, the mo- from the time we have about a five inch height difference I do with both of them. And so there was this, you know, there was this way in which she was a, a force. And I think it brought out, and so hanging out with her was like, going to do things that generally felt beyond my capacity and potentially beyond my development, you know, at a given point. So it was a stretch, but it was very, uh, but it grew me, you know, and it was wow. uh, the ways in which she challenged me. And in what capacity? Can you give an example? Yeah. Is this in, in play or in other aspects of life? Yeah, I would say probably in both, definitely in play, you know, so it'd be like, let's go play tennis. And she was an incredible tennis player. She, she was self-taught and she wound up being uh, MVP of her tennis team and captain of it, at, you know, in, in high school and never took a lesson. And there were these ways in which she was just so naturally gifted and had this like bold quality. And I see it in my niece, who's her daughter and my niece, Aria, who's, who has a lot of that as well. And it was really powerful. And I, w- I was more, I was cautious. And so I was a rebel, but I was cautious. and reluctant and aware of my size and the size difference. Like she was taller and my dad was bigger. Um, there was this consciousness of the sort of questioning, I think, of like, what can I, what am I capable of relative to these, <laughs> mm-hmm. to these humans? And then I think my younger sister, you know, we were so, we were close. We were very, uh, we, we shared a bedroom and at night we would play games of the imagination. We would like construct you know, elaborate homes we'd want to live in, or um, we'd go on little journeys that we'd entertain each other with, uh, you know, telling each other stories and kind of imagining places we'd we'd, uh, visit. And she brought out in me this definitely a sense of, like, I'm the older sister, I'm I'm here to protect her. And I think some of the qualities I developed very much in relation to her were, were compassion and a form of empathy that I think at times could be like, over caregiving, you know, I was like, I want to, I want to spare her from all the pain. Like I want to do her homework for her because she doesn't want to do it and she'd rather play, you know? Yeah. There was a very deep tenderness in, in our relationship. And I think she brought out a lot of the kind of nurturing qualities in me. So yeah, I often, I often say it's best of both worlds to be in the middle. Uh, you get exposed to both. <laughs> we always wrap up a our discussion around childhood and upbringing around the question of abundance and scarcity. Mm. doesn't sound like you lived with any sense of scarcity or scarcity, but it was a life of abundance. Mm. Is that a fair reflection? Well, what I will say, you know, in, in a material sense, the three of us like to joke that our parents, they worked really hard, you know, and they were really good at... <laughs> making us aware of the economic differences between life in the United States and life in India and everywhere else in the world. And one of the ways that they did that was we, we sort of joke, they, there was kind of this like deprivation game we played in the household. And it wasn't apparent to us for a long time that it was, that it was a game, but, but they were, they were thrifty and they were very thoughtful. And some of that was in service of saving and teaching us habits around that. But we spoke openly and we were aware of like, you know, how much they worked and even what their salaries were at times. And if we were looking, you know, we 
at some point we went to, we moved out of an apartment into a house and we went on the house hunts with them and we knew how much the houses cost. And so they were really interested in teaching us about value. And we were not, we were like the opposite of spoiled. It was like, earn your, (laughs) you know, earn your, uh, your, your treasures. Most things are considered a luxury and be really mindful and of how you value the things you have and take care of them. So my clothes were definite were hand me downs, and it wasn't. There was a disparity between what <laughs> from from your sister who's six inches taller than you. Exactly, totally. <laughs> yeah, I would roll up the skirts and create this whole <laughs> elaborate safety pin thing to be able to keep the clothes on. So you know, there there was that element of it. I would say from a so there was actually like a scarcity mentality that was intentional around teaching us about value that you know was sometimes created some pain. But in, in retrospect, I, I really value them for that from a, a kind of you know, emotional perspective and the orientation we had. I think it's related to the latter, but we appreciate, yeah, it was like I, you know, living in a home felt like really, I was really aware that I lived in a home and how abundant that was. And uh, very appreciative also of, of the nature of my parents' involvement in our lives, even though we wanted more. You know, they worked a lot. We were home on our own a lot. Yeah, we were a family that got to eat dinner together and be together. And there was definitely a lot of abundance. And you attended uh, Bronx High School. Um, what was school like for young Nita? Yeah, I loved high school, but I will say, I so I lived in Jamaica, Queens, which meant I took three wow, trains a, to get to Bronx Science. That's a trek. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, it was like the local schools weren't awesome. And so... Yeah, so that I would get up at five thirty every morning, <laughs> leave wow. leave for school a little before six. <sighs> I slept about five hours a night because, and I wasn't on sports teams, so I would play tennis in the summers on my own or exercise on my own. But the commute was somewhere; it was you know, I don't know, an hour and a half to two hours. More than that on a bad day each way. That's brutal. Yeah, it's interesting. You you managed to achieve so much because of the, I mean, all the the literature and all the science around sleep in children suggests that they really do need a lot more than seven hours sleep and you can buy on five. Totally. Incredible. <laughs> I mean, Friday night I would get home and my family knew to just leave me alone. I would get home at around 4.30. I would pass out and not wake up the next day till 11. I would skip dinner. I was just like, you know, the accumulated. I think about it now a lot because so much of our work is focused on well-being. And yeah, I was definitely sleep deprived, but the experience was wonderful. I loved school. I had some really amazing teachers and um, yeah, it was a great, I was enlivened by by the content, by my peers, by my teachers. I, I was really lucky to have. And at that point, did you have any sense of where you wanted to focus your mm. your life's energy? You know, so it goes back to kind of the science conversation. Like I, I think my freshman year, yeah, my freshman year, I, I took an English class and I wrote a little bit of poetry in it. And, you know, we read, we read extensively. We read Shakespeare. It was like, I, I read a lot as a kid, but it was this next level awakening into, I don't know, the world of art and literature and not science as a, as a way of being and a way of connecting with the world. And I found, I think I was almost surprised at how much I loved it. And I think the, the idea that I was like 
destined to be in the sci- you know in the sciences somehow was partially um, driven by my interest in it, but also largely driven by my context, my environment, and what people outside of me saw about me. And so, you know, I think high school was this place where I was starting to discover more for myself what I was really what turned me on and what excited me. And it, and it was the beginning of attention as well. Was it okay to not go into sciences? My parents definitely wanted me to be a doctor. And so, yeah, but I, I definitely, uh, I think started touching into the robustness of my interest in, in being educated in learning broadly and expansively. When did you get a, were you quite politically and socially conscious as to what was happening around, around you? Mm-hmm. Uh, in culture and in business and society. Yeah, definitely. And I think that was yeah, as a function of a few things. One was being a New Yorker. You know, I think there's just a sort of consciousness here <laughs> around that, especially because, you know, people from here are people from everywhere. And so there is this broader awareness that comes with living here. I think it was also, again, like I would go back to my father and the kind of conversations we were having at home. And there was definitely an awareness of politics and both locally and globally. Like it was just, you know, kind of being tuned into what was happening. I was, I'm trying to think about the years, like 90, 91, maybe to 95 yes, was, um, was high yeah, school. So, so first girl, Gulf War. Yeah. Which is a big, definitely, yeah, an awareness and, the and a, of the the breakdown of the Soviet Union, the Eastern Bloc, and yeah, all that. Yep. This crazy sort of end of end of history, so called times. Totally, yeah, and and just like our, I think I was very aware of the differences in the ways we we all reacted to <laughs> these, you know, unfoldings where how people very very conscious of like fear. As a, as both a vehicle to, we used to communicate what was happening, as well as like the experience people had as they were internalizing or processing their own reactions to those times. You know, we did those drills. I think probably both in middle school as well as high school. Of like, you know, it's Cold War. Like there could be yeah. a nuclear. War. Get under your desks. Like the drill. You know, preparation for that. And I, I definitely. You know, I, I think about that quite a bit. <laughs> so when you you left your education, you mentioned that you went to Columbia. Mm-hmm. Um, you also did your MBA at George Washington. Yeah. Your evolution from education into work was very educationally focused. Was that a conscious decision? Yeah. So while I was in college, I, I did AmeriCorps. I was part of AmeriCorps. So, what did, so for people that don't know that, could you explain? Yeah. It's, it's basically a, a service program where you can provide volunteer services uh, as a young person on a variety of issues. And I was part of Net Impact, which is also, I think that organization grew quite a bit, um, but as a social impact focus organization that had chapters at the time, like chapters across campuses, across college campuses. So I think I learned about AmeriCorps through Net Impact and was just looking for ways to be involved in and supporting the community. And I was drawn to education. So I, my first year I taught ESL, English as a second language, to adult immigrants. And then my 
I think it was maybe my second year of it, uh, I taught remedial math and English to elementary students in Harlem. And uh, that was an incredible and transformative experience. I was working with, she was a young teacher. She was also a student at Columbia, but she was really gifted. And I learned a lot from her. And I was working on a small team of teachers who were working with a classroom of, of these elementary students. And just watching her, you know, we begin the morning sitting in a circle and these were kids who came in, you know, across the spectrum in terms of their reading ability and had a variety of challenges in their lives, so, you know, socially and emotionally, from parents who were incarcerated to, you know, parents who weren't uh, at home and being raised by family members other than parents. And they were young and really kind of tender. And so this, this lead teacher would, you know, circle us up and it was, it was profound to watch how she would sort of scaffold them into this process of coming into the moment together, you know, kind of leaving behind wherever it was that they had come from. And she was this really grounding and stabilizing force for them. And so, you know, we would begin with like attending to their social and emotional experience in the moment. And then we'd go into the learning and it was incredible over the course of a summer, you know, we had kids reading who came in not reading. And I think that was a really impactful experience at the time. You know, it's amazing, you know, retrospective bias, I sometimes call it, but being able to see and, and make meaning and make sense of something, you know, after the fact. I think when I was actually having the experience, I was really, it was profound. And I don't think how, I don't think I realized how profound it was until later on. But yeah, that was, it was really impactful. I, th- I think that made its way into my decision to, to teach and to focus on education after, yeah, after college. You're, I mean, a lot of people go into that, on that educational journey and stay on a linear track. It's, you seem to have taken a more <laughs> expansive human-centric mm. focus, particularly on organize, around culture and organizations. Yeah. So was there a pivotal moment or some seminal experience that, that led um, to that, that switch and that, that, that focus mm. on culture and organizations that yeah. might have um, led to that growing interest? Yeah. <laughs> That's an interesting question as a seminal. I mean, maybe it was just an evolution. Yeah. But I've just wondered if there was someone you met or something that happened. I mean, obviously we, we talk about, we want to explore serendipity. Um, and maybe now is a good time to, you know, what, what serendipitous events yeah. occurred that might have taken you on a slightly different path. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I might actually, I wonder if I'll actually go back to my childhood because it feels <laughs> sort of connected. I... From third to fifth grade, I I went to I think one of the first like gifted and talented is what they called it back then programs in New York City. They were just developing this. So our the way our program worked was we were a small group of 30 students who took a bus to go to a school outside of our neighborhood. And we were inside of this cohort that was co-located in in another public school. But we were a particular program. So we we had our own unique academic experience. So weekly Mensa would come and teach us. It was very project-based learning. I think there was some overlap with what you would think of as Montessori education today. 
it was very self-directed as an example. Like, you know, I think early in the first day of, of third grade, <laughs> one of our, one of the pieces of guidance we received is you, you've got to read 20 books this year and submit 20 book reports anytime between now and the end of the school year, which like a year feels like a really long time horizon to an eight-year-old, you know? <laughs> and so it's really interesting. It's like, you've got to figure out how to organize yourself and, and lead yourself as a kid, you know? And like, my parents weren't people who were familiar, very deeply familiar with the American educational system as immigrants. They were, they were highly educated, but not in the system. So there's a lot of, it would like, I would go home and tell them, you know, what we needed to do as opposed to the other way around. But that, I mean, another facet of that experience that was really impactful was I was the only, I think I was one of maybe just a couple of kids who were the only non-African-American or Black students in the school. And that was a function of where we were coming from. And we had a Black principal, a, a woman, uh, Mrs. Krishlow, who was amazing. And um, my experience in school was Black culture and Black history in America and globally was exalted every day. So we would begin the day singing the Black National Anthem. And What's that? Yeah, it's <laughs> lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven ring. I've with, never heard that. Oh, it's wow. beautiful. Um, and then when I got older, I would go sing it to my friends and be like, do you know the line? Because <laughs> I know it. And so we began each morning in assembly, in song. There was this kind of, you know, exaltation and appreciation of Black culture that I don't know where else you would find that because that was certainly not like, you know, typical in our culture and in schools unless you were seeking it out. And I also became this sort of, there was a facet of me that was like a little, becoming a little advocate. So, you know, I would go home and tell my parents what I was learning and why, you know, this like just sort of my own perspective on diversity and on culture. And I think that was the beginning of this sort of awareness and awakening to the impacts of inequities on different cultures. I think I started seeing my parents and their experience through that lens at a very young age as well. Like we had, I used to help my parents work on their resumes and navigate, you know, career changes. Those were conversations we had. And, and so I became aware of their relationship to the workforce and to the labor economy through those conversations. And I was also very acutely aware as a self-interested kid in the impact that their work lives had on me and on our ability to spend time together or not. You know, and that was a big that was another big conversation that we had in the in the household for a long time. So sort of pulling those things up, you know, one of the things I saw in the education world where I was a teacher and then I was an administrator, I worked in government as well, was just, I went to work in education because it felt to me like the place you could make really positive social impact. Like the calculus for me was that at some point, every kid in the United States has to go through the education system, which means if you want to impact lives, this is a good place to do it. And then as I, as I sort of, you know, evolved from a kind of more idealistic understanding of the systems. And I worked in the New York City, in the New York City school system. So we're a system of 1.1 million students. It's the largest school system in the country by far. I sort of started having this firsthand perspective on systems and on educating inside of systems. And 
think perhaps like a, a kind of turning point for me was in recognizing in dialogue with, with people who had a lot of power in those systems, how much the dysfunction inside of organizations can compromise your ability to actually deliver on the impact that you're seeking to make. And by contrast, how much when you can really, uh, when your own interpersonal dynamics and your own ability to navigate a culture smoothly is really happening, uh, your ability to create the impact that you're seeking to is significantly enhanced. You know, and that was a that was my firsthand experience in small and large ways. It was like, why are why are there twenty people sitting in a meeting, right? Uh, for three hours, what else could we be doing with our time? And what are we act- are we actually making decisions, or are we spending time struggling through the differences in our personalities and perspectives without really being equipped with the tools to do that in a way that's that feels like productive and in service of the students who are here to serve, as one example. And I think yeah, that awareness began really began to grow inside of systems and probably in response to, you know, where I was feeling myself misaligned with them. That's really interesting. Okay, that's all for part one. Come back tomorrow for part two. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.